0: Some of you might know the title of the talk. No? Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, It's, um, you'll know now, (laughs) opening the heart to love and compassion. There are four sublime states of mind or excellent states of mind that have been taught by the Buddha. And these are love or loving kindness and compassion sympathetic or empathetic joy, and equanimity. Certainly some of us have practiced uh, some of them. And they're said to be sublime or excellent because they are the right or they're the ideal way of conduct towards living beings. Meaning that if we nurture our hearts and incline the hearts towards these sublime and excellent states of mind towards ourself and towards other beings, then um, they can really provide a possibility or even a solution to all situations of life if we live from that space of excellence. Why? Because they are able to remove the great tensions that are inhabiting the heart and the mind therefore they also are enabling the healing of the wounds that are present and it may feel when we struggle in our existence whether it's on our cushion or in our life that there is no solution and often we have the tendency to not look and to not reach out for those sublime states of mind. That could really be helpful. What do they bring? They bring a sense of connection. That's the first thing that they bring to whatever is happening. A sense of connection that will somehow nurture the quality of peace and harmony with whatever it is that is happening whether it's within our relationship to ourselves or to other beings. So it's important to um, remember them, and especially for um, those of us that are going to continue this retreat to really bring that possibility of nurturing the heart in the next few days with these qualities. And for those of us that are moving through a transition, going back into our life, well, we can definitely remember these in relationship to other beings, those who we meet very soon. So I won't talk tonight about all four, but just the two first, which definitely are present. Loving kindness and compassion are often said to be the two foundations for our practice to be nurtured. Now some people have the good fortune to naturally have these states of mind and sublime, excellent states of mind present. There's a sense of radiation of kindness and of love which is quite spontaneous in some people. And we can have some figures, you know. If I talk about the Dalai Lama, of course, <laughs> him—he has that kind of quality. And we can also, you know, mention other beings like Mother Teresa, for example, or Gandhi, and many others. So these figures are inspiring to us. It's a way that we can say, yes, it's possible. If they can, why can't we? So we can relate to beings that really manifest, express this kind of uh, excellence. We can also relate, maybe, to our own teachers. It's possible that there's a sense of inspiration that comes from a teacher, from someone who has realized um, some part of the path, maybe all the path. It's possible also that we meet some ordinary beings and that they nurture this quality just very spontaneously. So it's not something out of reality. It's really possible to touch upon this, these states. Now, I've often seen that this love emerges from beings because they've been in connection with suffering, and that they were able to meet that suffering in a way that it transforms the heart into opening to this beautiful quality. Some twenty-five years ago, I had the luck with my husband to live some t- for some time um, in Darmsala, northern India, the resident place of where the Dalai Lama was uh, residing, where he became a refugee from Tibet. And, um, in those times, it was very easy to meet with him. He was not the very famous (laughs) being that he is today. And so we would have several audiences, private uh, possibilities of just meeting and have practice interviews with him, just like you have with us. And it was quite (laughs) an extraordinary situation, which today I realize, you know, then it was just like, oh yeah, we're just going to see the (laughs) Dalai Lama. And it was just fantastic, because one time we um, went for precise reason is that uh, we wanted to go to tibet from northern India, and um, because he definitely has wisdom, we asked him his advice what is it good to go to tibet china what 's the political situation? How does it feel to him if we went as westerners and He really was so open to us, and he started speaking of his own condition, of his own country, and what had happened to him, and how uh, it became so difficult to stay there. And then he was really describing with some length his uh, journey, and very beautifully his heart was completely open, and then I just saw tears really run down his cheeks. And the next moment, he burst into laughter. And he said, you know, this is what's life. (laughs) This is what life is all about. And it contains such a spaciousness of loving acceptance that It really (laughs) threw me into a state of, how do you do it, you know? How is it possible (laughs) that um, you are able to meet this situation with so much wholeheartedness? And he just said, very openly, he said, you can too. Every being can. And I said, well, what is it? (laughs) He said, practice. And practicing in a way that we do not hold any grudges. Whatever it is that has been present in our life, just don't hold grudges and no resentment. That's the kind of love (laughs) that can move forward, that can really meet situations. And he said, you know, they've taken the land, they've taken some of our people, Why should I let them take my heart and mind? And that's exactly why there was so much openness, spaciousness and peace. That they can't take away. And so this expression of spacious love is really enabling to meet all kinds of situations. We all have our own. You know, we all have our destiny and fate and uh, journey into ourselves. Can we care, hold that sense of connection with what is? The Buddha said of metta that it's the greatest protection that we can hold. The greatest protection is metta. It's this loving-kindness. And we can feel, it's true, when whenever there is a sense of distance, of separation, if there is that caring attention, and there can be a sense of just tenderness, gentleness, with whatever it is, then immediately there's again a connection. And that's what metta does. The Buddha says that metta is also a refuge. When we are faced with pain, we definitely need a refuge, some place where the heart can hold itself and it doesn't mean that the pain is going to go away but the metta is there, it's present. So some beings can naturally move quite easily with ease towards that um, kindness. And in fact the Dilemma Lama was saying, you know, again and again, I think uh, in quite a number of books you can read that if we (laughs) hear about loving-kindness, for him the emphasis needs to be put on kindness, because there can be a distortion with the word of love, which I'll talk about in a moment. I know that for myself, this practice, or even this felt sense of kindness, was totally unreachable at the beginning of my practice. I have come to practice, like many beings, because of so much suffering, and wanted the wisdom, wanted to understand really what was going on in this little mind of mine. (laughs) And there was a sense of um, connecting to understanding. But what was the quality? Of the relationship to meeting myself. I knew pain and I really knew how to hold on to pain and how much suffering was caused due to this mind of mine. And so very naturally the teacher said, why don't you do some metta? It would be helpful. And I said, oh, no, I don't want to do this practice. It sounds completely fake and fabricated (laughs) and totally unnatural. This is not the state of my mind. Why should I fabricate something which feels like false? And so I would not be able even to consider moving into that direction. And when I think of that today, (laughs) I'm you know, it's amazing. And so this was my first retreat, and... (laughs) I cried from beginning to end, was so miserable, yet could not move out of that feeling of being miserable, because there was attachment to suffering. Not being able to find even a possibility of relief from pain. That's all I knew. And so he was a very clever teacher, (laughs) thank goodness for me. He said, okay, in your wisdom practice, in your insight practice, then, Just as you're allowing your understanding, please bring into this mindfulness just the fact of taking care of your heart as if it were a new baby. Simple. And I said, oh yeah, that I can do. And I don't know, it just connected. And of course <laughs> some years later really years later i thought that was meta of course it was just this connection of being able to hold the heart as i was practicing my mindfulness practice and very naturally things shifted from that point on and so it not it was not a form it was not a formal practice that would have felt really um quite fake to me, artificial, then, within that state of mind. So if you hurt, you can take care of your heart as if it were a new baby. Just that. And there's the connection. It's said that the nature of the heart and mind is pure and radiant. And I said that the other night. That this, this quality of love that has no preferences, that doesn't see good or bad. That really is that sense of metta, meaning that there is in this purity a true basic goodness, a friendliness that is present. And if we don't have that natural connection, it's only because of the veils of greed, hatred, and delusion that we know well. But it's not some other state. If there's an uncovering of those um, difficult mind states or afflictive emotions, then very naturally there's a discovery of this purity of heart and mind. And so it is said that metta cannot at all be associated with greed, hatred, and delusion. Meaning that if there's a moment when uh, you are feeling and there's the presence of one of the sublime states of loving-kindness, compassion, mudita, or equanimity, then there isn't the presence of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's as simple as that. And that we can trust. We can look for ourselves to know how it's possible to trust our own experience. The manifestation of metta, of loving-kindness, is a state of serenity. It's quite calm, tranquil. And it's really a sense of abiding in gentle calmness. It's a cool state. It's said that metta is like the gentle rain that refreshes one when we've been too long in the hot sun. There was a long exposure to the hot sun. How does the gentle rain feel for us? Wonderful. So it's a very sweet shower of metta that is soft. The mind and heart are soft. They're pliable. There's a sense of receptivity, a relaxed state of mind and heart. In those moments, it is the true heart's release. Release from what? From the unwholesome states of mind. So this quality is often emerges, and I've found for myself over the years of practice within our Vipassana practice. You know, it's not to think that if we don't do formal metta practice, this quality of any of these sublime states is not present. Very naturally, the quality of mindfulness, of concentration, of equanimity, of energy, of joy... All those factors of of enlightenment, of awakening, that we cultivate, will very naturally lead one to uh, this release of the heart. What happens then? There's a non-judgmental acceptance. Therefore, kindness towards what we're meeting. And so already, of course, in our Vipassana practice, these are nurtured, and they are cultivated, and they are deepened. If we do, at times, formal metta practice, it's only to strengthen these qualities, nothing else. So it's not to think that they are separate. And for quite a number of years, I had this misunderstanding, and that's why I'm sharing this. It's also... Very common to think that (laughs) metta, this loving-kindness, is a felt sense of um, being bathed in joy. Joy very close to excitement, to great enthusiasm, where there's a lot of energy within us, and there's intensity and exhilaration. And that's not so because of what I just described. It's really a coolness. It's the gentle rain. And so, if we want to think of the uh, a shining brightness, we can really think of metta as being uh, the shining light or the bright light of the moon, the full moon. That coolness of light, which is definitely bringing light on earth when it's full. Yes, it is. It's not intense. It doesn't have that intensity of the sunlight. We can look at the moon and not hurt our eyes. Therefore, there is this uh, beautiful quality of calm, of gentle calm. When metta is present, So when we confuse and think that there's this sense of excitement, it's often because we're meeting the very close neighbor. And the close neighbor to this loving kindness is, of course, attachment or desire. And they're very, very close. (laughs) And I'll talk a little more about this um, in a moment. Attachment brings pain. Even if there's this quality of pleasure for some time, there's definitely a sense of ending in pain. Kindness or loving kindness will not will never be able to end in pain. It's just impossible. Metta. Uh, um The contrary will heal the heart from pain. It has this immeasurable virtue of kindness that leads one to peace rather than to pain. This is from the Buddha. He says, One who has actively developed loving-kindness mindfully and without limit can see that their attachment wane And their bonds become one thing. If one shows kindness with a clear mind, meaning with wisdom, even once for living creatures, by that one moment of kindness, one becomes wholesome. Having mercy in his or her heart for all creature, the noble person brings forth abundant goodness. That is the basic goodness of metta. Just for one moment, imagine how much metta we've cultivated during these days here. And it's so important that we just spend one moment really sensing the beautiful qualities that have emerged during our time here. They've expressed themselves in one way or another. Towards ourselves. definitely there's been a moment of kindness, of goodness. Towards other fellow yogis. Towards the cat, that I've seen. <laughs> so definitely there is this presence we so often overlook our own qualities and get so fixated on what's wrong, what isn't going well, the sense of non-perfection about ourselves. What does it mean to be perfect? Compared to what? To whom? So recognizing this kindness gives us already a true heart's release. Just in this moment, there's a smile that comes, yeah, this is true. So we don't need to be attached so strongly to our beliefs. It's enabling the flow of life to really manifest And so that dynamic force and power of kindness can continue. That is what we can nurture. Deepama, a great, great Indian yogini from Calcutta, maybe some of you have heard of her. She's now no longer on this earth, But um, I had the chance to meet her in Calcutta, and she definitely blessed every single thing that she was encountering in her life, every single moment. She just carried this beautiful quality of loving-kindness. And one day I had the chance to go and meet her in her apartment, and... Fortunately for her, she was on retreat, meaning that she was not receiving visitors. Many, many people were going to see her, yet it was possible to receive her darshan, her blessing, without having any speech with her. And I must say that, just to enter, (laughs) that room was just mind-blowing. It was heart-blowing in the way that... (laughs) So much spaciousness, and tears rolled down my eyes, just from my eyes down my cheek, just by the power of her love. And it was just so strong that I was really taken aback. And she was not looking at me, she had her um, back to me, so she couldn't see. And she turned around and she said, it's okay, it's okay. It's just love. (laughs) And it was just such an amazing encounter that, you know, if we are able to feel that just for one moment from another being, it's such a blessing. Because it enables the possibility of knowing that, yes, it is the true nature of our heart and mind. Nothing else is. Everything else, just (coughs) visiting. Visitors, come and go. (laughs) But that is something which really we can trust. And in fact, she did say to a student, who is um, a good friend, and she was asked if the student should practice mindfulness or loving-kindness practice. She didn't have a lot of time for practice, and she really asked Dipama, what should I practice? Should I practice mindfulness or love? And Deepama's response was, from my own experience, there's no difference between mindfulness and loving-kindness. Love and awareness... We're one. And if we think about it, and you know, I really thought about this for a long time. And it's true that when we are fully loving, there's definitely a mind that's full of presence, of awareness. Aren't we also mindful? And when we are fully mindful, isn't this the moment the essence of that mindfulness is love? And it's only because of maybe our small mind that there is this sense of separation that is created, which is not the truth. And this love that Deepa Mo was talking about is just unconditional acceptance with what is. She often expressed what she meant by love, to be the unconditional acceptance of what is. When we have the sense that everything is workable, everything can be met with a heart that can meet the difficulties, the torments of the mind, there is definitely a sense of greater receptivity, of relaxation. And Marcia and I have really encouraged this relaxation again and again. It means really opening to what is, not closing down, not shutting down. And if we are shutting down, it means... Opening to the shutting down, to the fact that we are resisting. (laughs) Yes, there is resistance. Yes, I don't want to accept this. Okay, don't accept. It's okay to not accept. Opening to the resistance. It doesn't mean to have another state than the one that's present. So desire, the close neighbor, attachment comes in the way, and that's what we often meet. What desire says is, follow the heart. You know, often we follow our desires, and there's the sense of following the heart, and it's often a way to um, listen a little too closely to our desires, in the sense of really feeding the habit of the mind. Now, what would be different if we had a relationship to the heart that would be an unconditional acceptance? Rather than follow the heart in the way that we follow our desires, it would be much more to listen to the heart. Just like we have this possibility of anchoring our practice in listening to the sounds, it's really valuable. and. I trust that you can at times open the space of body and to include that heart and just to listen to the heart space as a felt sense. And maybe you'll meet tension. Maybe you'll meet pressure. Or maybe you'll meet calm. Whatever it is, there's that possibility of encouragement to feel just what it is that is present, with softness, with gentleness, no need to force. So there's so little distinction between love and desire, love and attachment, and yet the result is a very different one. I think that to the thinking mind, it's really difficult to grasp that distinction. If we think, if we try to figure out, it's really hard to notice the difference. To the space, if we are in that space of heart-mind that I just expressed, then very clearly we'll sense the difference. It's quite simple. Probably the intention is the same. There is this initial intention of offering, of a gift, in the sense of offering ourselves this space of acceptance. For example, we can offer ourselves words to be happy, to be peaceful, to be at ease. Offer other people these words. Offer actions of kindness, simple gestures of basic goodness. And so initially, the desire is quite wholesome, it's quite pure. When there's love, there's just that offering. What happens often, that if there's a desire, there's a sense of offering, and then wanting back, expecting something in return. Whether it is towards our own self, connection with ourself in practice, or whether it is in life, that desire, that neediness, is of course a sense of grasping. And that is why there isn't this beautiful quality of feeling at ease and peaceful. You can say that there's this offering, the hand is open at first, and it stays open as the connection is manifesting, and the relationship to the heart is present. So love is that open hand. If desire comes in, (laughs) it becomes a closed fist. There's really this movement of, and I really like to, you know, show that movement because that's exactly what is happening. Now it's always all possible <laughs> anytime to do this again, right? Open your hand again. It's not because there's a moment of grasping that we can't find that quality of initial love. What it requires is wholehearted presence, and this is why this true basic goodness or love is also nourished by wisdom, meaning that understanding definitely nourishes the sublime states of mind. so the attachments that we meet are just moments of grasping. And at any moment there can be a true release of the heart. This is the poem from Veronica Schofstow. It's named After a While. After a while you learn the subtle difference between holding a hand and chaining a soul. And you learn that love doesn't mean leaning and company doesn't mean security. And you begin to learn that kisses aren't contracts and presents aren't promises. And you begin to accept your defeats with your head up and your eyes open. With the grace of a woman, not the grief of a child. And you learn to build all your roads on today because tomorrow's ground is too uncertain for plans and futures have a way of falling down in mid-flight. After a while, you learn that even sunshine burns if you get too much. So plant your own garden and decorate your own soul instead of waiting for someone to bring you flowers. And you learn that you can endure, that you really are strong, and you really have worth, and you learn and you learn with every goodbye Learn. That is exactly the quality of being able to meet ourselves with the depth of the heart that is present every time that we trust the source of our being, that basic goodness, not depending on the other to be in peace. It doesn't mean we won't have company. On the contrary, there's a greater connection from that space of not needing to grasp on. And through this sense of caring, of love, and really understanding There is the sense of love that is carried through and that flows very naturally when we are meeting pain. And this caring, this love, this openness or unconditional acceptance manifests in the face of pain, of sorrow. And that is called compassion. So, compassion springs from a heart and a mind that are deeply rooted in wisdom and love. Really in a way compassion teaches us again and again to relate to our pain with acceptance and with kindness. It's the greatest teacher that is available to us. The word in Pali is karuna. And what it literally means is kindness. Kindness in the face of pain. So we develop this kindness with the heart of metta in a way that it enables us then to meet our pain with this kindness. Our own pain and the pain of others. There's such a sense of connection then of non-separation, that there isn't so much this sense of me and you, and from the space of the heart, we can really sense very directly what it feels to feel the pain of another. Because suffering is quite universal. And there's a sense of connection there when we sense our own Chumpa says this, he says, When there is pain, loving-kindness gives birth to a natural compassion. The compassionate heart can hold the pain and the sorrow of our life, and the sorrow and life of all beings with tenderness. It is this simple, tender heart that has the power to transform the world. what we most want to see in the world. We need to transform ourselves. This is what Gandhi said, you know, we need to take that responsibility of, rather than saying, oh, you know, it's out there that it should change. (laughs) Let's begin within our own heart and mind, and then we can sense a sense of compassion and love that can serve other people. In fact, compassion and love serve each other. So in this shared human experience of suffering, if compassion arises from this awareness of suffering, why isn't it that the world doesn't spontaneously bring forth a more loving place? Why is it that beings that know the sense of suffering, don't manifest a sense of help. Why is it that we still fight with one another for land, for security, out of a sense of grasping? When we sense that we know, at least for those of us who have a greater understanding We know what is needed and what will bring forth peace and harmony. I think that is very clear. Often I know what's needed, but there's a sense that we're not sure to know what the other needs. And how can we manifest this possibility of bringing this need to the other person? How to help? We know help is needed, but we're not sure to know how to help. Therefore, we stay often without action. This is why we are so fortunate human beings, precious human beings, but even more so fortunate because it is the practice itself that very naturally will bring you to meet your own pain. Therefore, you'll know how you are helping yourself in relationship to your pain. You know what was needed. You know how you felt when you were drowning in pain and how it was that you were able to change and shift that relationship. If we can know how to help ourselves. Very naturally, there'll be a greater spontaneity and knowing of how to help others. This is the beauty of the practice. This is from the Dalai Lama, who says, When you are aware of your pain and suffering, it helps you to develop your capacity for empathy. The capacity which allows you to relate to other people's feelings and suffering, this is the practice that will help us know what is needed. This enhances your capacity for compassion towards others. And that's exactly what the dhyala manifests. When there's a better understanding of ourself, obviously there's a better understanding, and a greater openness and acceptance of the suffering of another. Now often what we meet is the very close neighbor of compassion, which is pity. And here again, they're so close that they're very difficult to distinguish. Yet, they do not bring the same result. The sense of pity is a a kind of disconnection from the suffering. It's the sense of separation, of distancing oneself, where, you know, it can be uh, this poor part of me, or this poor person, poor you, where I'm not feeling like this. So, of course, there's maybe a a connection, but it's very distant, and it doesn't feel the pain with openness. It doesn't accept the suffering. When there's a sense of pity, there's a sense of, hmm, I'm not really open to this pain. And pity uh, really is considered in the teachings to be part of the domain of the category of aversion. So we may see underneath that there's a sense of not fully accepting, but being averse. So can we meet that pain, that resistance? of maybe pity, that we look down on a person. And in fact, when we meet resistances, it's often aversion that is present, and aversion is what causes the greatest suffering. It's not the experience itself. Hermann Hess says, you know quite well deep within you that there's only one single magic, a single power, a single salvation, and that is called loving. Love your suffering. Do not resist it. Do not flee from it. Give yourself to it. It's only the aversion that hurts nothing else. So why we are hurting, it's because of the grasping, holding on to the pain in the way that we hold on with aversion. And I think I won't go there because uh, there have been several talks about (laughs) working with aversion, and I want to stay in the field of (laughs) loving-kindness and the beautiful qualities of heart and mind. I couldn't go to aversion right now, actually. (laughs) And I think that we know, you know, quite well how to work with aversion just to recognize it and not judge ourselves for it and not identify with it. That's what's needed. So compassion is active. It's really involved. It's not doing, you know, hiding away. It sees what's happening, and if it's resistance, well, it just sees the pain and meets the pain. The important thing here is that we need to continue to look, to have the courage, that strength of heart at times is needed, that wholehearted attention to continue to meet what is present, that we don't withdraw, we don't drown in the pain, But we're just here with the truth and caring for our pain because there is this ground of metta. The Dalai Lama says, you must deal with adversity. Face it, but absolutely do not fall into despair. And that's often what we do. We fall into despair when nothing is going the way we want it. That is the worst you can do, he says. Then the battle is lost. It doesn't matter what it is you have to face, what type of suffering it is. Just don't fall into despair. Meaning, stay awake, just be present. You might want to take a step back, but you do stay involved. Don't withdraw and no drowning. There's uh, an extraordinary story which always brings tears to my (laughs) uh, eyes when I read it, so I'll try to contain them. But it's just such an incredible, um, beautiful manifestation of the courage of a woman's heart. And it really expresses (laughs) the sense of compassion and openness and acceptance in response to great, great suffering, probably one of the greatest suffering then that uh, a mother can have. So, this is the story. No matter how extreme the circumstances, a transformation of the heart is possible. Once on the train from Washington to Philadelphia, I found myself seated next to an African-American man who had worked for the State Department in India but had quit to run a rehabilitation program for juvenile offenders in the District of Columbia. Most of the youths he worked with were gang members who had committed homicide. One 14-year-old boy in his program had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. At the trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end, when the youth was convicted of the killing. After the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and said, I'm going to kill you. Then the youth was taken away to serve several years in the juvenile facility. After the first half year, the mother of the slain child went to visit his killer He had been living on the streets before the killing, and she was the only visitor he had. For a time, they talked, and when she left, she gave him some money for cigarettes. Then she started step by step to visit him more regularly, bringing food and small gifts. Near the end of his three-year sentence, she asked him what he would do with his life when he got out. He was confused and very uncertain. So she offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live. And since he had no family to return to, she offered him temporary use of the spare room in her house. For eight months he lived there, ate her food and worked at the job. Then one evening she called him, into the living room to talk. She sat down opposite him and waited. Then she started, do you remember in the courtroom when I said I was going to kill you? I sure do, he replied. Well, I did. (laughs) She went on, I did not want the boy who would kill my son for no reason to remain alive On this earth. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live here in my house. That's how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here. I've got room, and I'd like to adopt you, if you let me. And she became the mother of her son's killer, the mother he never had. This is a true story. beautiful (laughs) quality of the heart that can manifest boundlessly without any sense of staying fixated into the pain. Definitely this woman must have felt a lot, a lot of pain. Yet was able to move forward take action, and how much that boy benefited from that generosity of heart. Compassion is an expression of the heart and mind, and when it's expressed like this, it can really take in the full range of human conditioning and still love life. And that's exactly what we witness in this story. There's no opposition. When we begin to open to all of it, not needing to choose which way to go, to prefer this rather than that, We're touched and in touch with life, as it is. And we can live from that place of trust rather than live from a place of fear. (coughs) Our behavior, our way of being, then very clearly in the world will hold a greater sense of empathy and of compassion. As we allow ourselves... To feel more and more. That's all that we're doing here. And it's so valuable and needed. As we feel more, there's lesser sense of separation. And spontaneously, quite naturally, that loving care will manifest with all kinds of situations. So we accept, we honor with grace and with love the transformation that has happened here and rejoice for all those moments where we've been able to feel and not shut down. And for us all, there were so many moments and there still will be of enabling the heart to open Walking the path to awakening becomes then an act of compassion. It's an act of compassion in itself. We offer our work, our practice, to the world, in the world. And in itself, it's an act of generosity. When the truth is revealed, there's simply an act of loving-kindness that is manifested. Every time this is happening, please rejoice. That also is part of the transformation to value the goodness that is present. Not to overlook it, and to not so be so fixated on what's wrong but also open our hearts to the beauty of life within and without i'd like to end the talk with a poem from mother teresa love does not grandstand like water it is humble And unstoppable. Love does not try to fix the whole world. It is enough to plant seeds of kindness and justice everywhere we can. I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can only feed one person at a time. Just one. Just one. So you begin, and I begin. I picked up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean. But if I didn't put that drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you. Same thing in your family. Same thing in the community where you live. Just begin. One, one, one. Let's sit. Thank you for listening.